All right, welcome back guys. I wanted to in this video mostly give an update on my portfolio. I'm gonna be doing some other things. I'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the video, some of the comments people leave, as well as going over a few other news items. But the main part of this, I wanted to look at my portfolio and give an update on it. In the last video, it was about AT&T. I didn't actually have time to give an update because the video went almost 50 minutes long. So in this one, I was looking at it and I thought it would be interesting to take a look at the past two years because I've been doing this type of investing that a lot of people are very interested in called dividend growth investing. The whole premise of it is that you're accumulating these different assets to create a separate source of income called passive income. Passive income is income that you're gaining, paying you in cash residually over and over again that you're not having to clock in and work for. And what I wanted to do was look at my portfolio over the past two years where the mark has gone up. Sometimes it's gone down. We've had dips of over 20%. Uh, Everything that's happened in the past two years, I want to look at this portfolio and see if I think that it's accomplishing my goals of creating passive income. So I wanted to talk mostly about that, but I'm going to be going over some other things as well. A few other things that I'm going to go over is the U.S. and China agreed to a limited trade deal. I'll be talking about that. We have Aramco. This is the biggest publicly traded company in the world. It has gone to a valuation of $2 trillion. A lot of people have asked me about this, if I'm going to invest in it, what I think of it, all that type of stuff. So I'll be talking about this a little bit later. And then Robinhood decided to offer fractional shares and they're following the journey of a lot of other brokers updating their feature set. Now they're gonna be offering fractional shares as well as a few other features. Then there's my portfolio. This is real. There's really $69,294 in this portfolio right now. I've built it up over the past two years. It's mostly a dividend growth portfolio. So I've selected companies that both pay dividends and grow their dividends continually, and as well as other features, other characteristics I look at in companies that I like the product, I like the safety behind their valuation, a few other things. I didn't have a chance to do an update on this portfolio last week because I did a video on AT&T here, this one, the the terribly sad story of AT&T, which was a deep dive look at this company and everything that went on with it. But the video, you can see it's 47 minutes long. I had to cut out the portfolio update because I didn't want it going over an hour long. So I wanted to give a quick portfolio update. I also wanted to say in the description of every video, you can see here I'm on one of my videos. There's a few different links. One of them is to the broker I'm using. The other one is to my main portfolio. That's the one that I usually show in my videos. And the other one is to my Roth IRA. So if you click on one of these, like if I click on my main portfolio here, it goes to my exact portfolio. The portfolio matches the video at the time that I posted it. So it's exactly what my portfolio was at the time that I'm posting this video. So you can click into that. And then on here, it shows you how many holdings I have, what my dividend yield is, my expense ratio. I can click into any single sector and see all the companies that I have and the amount that I have invested in it. So this will continually be updated on every video that I have, as well as I'll mention if I decide to sell or buy any new companies or make any big changes. So just to give an update on my portfolio, I thought it would be interesting to give an overall update of the past year and the past two years and see if it's accomplishing my goals, right? So I actually have goals aligned with this portfolio. The goal is to create a separate stream individual of my job or any endeavor that I'm actively doing and create a separate stream of passive income. That is the name of it. Passive income, all the strategies, the actual investing strategies like dividend growth investing, high yield stocks, having bonds in it. All of that is to accomplish the goal of creating a stream of passive income that will grow over time exponentially. That is my goal. Now, if I evaluate whether I'm meeting that goal, whether I'm doing good towards it or not, there's a couple things that I can look at. First of all, if I go to the gain here, 
I've made $9,000 overall in the past two years with it. $7,000 have came from market gains. That's the value of the stocks that I own going up in value because other people have purchased the same stocks after I have. And then the more important indicator, I think, if you're focusing on passive income, is the earned dividends. Now, there's something interesting about this earned dividends. I've earned $1,976 in dividends, so I am right on the edge of earning $2,000 in dividends. But the interesting thing about this earned dividends is that this whole timeline, this is over two years, so I started investing right at the beginning of 2018. We're at the end of 2019. So this is two years. It took me one and one half years to earn $1,000 in dividends. So up until six months ago, this number was $1,000 in earned dividends. And then since the last six months, this has doubled to $2,000. So overall, $2,000 might not seem like a ton of money in passive income over the course of two years, but consider the fact that the first year and a half, I've earned the same amount as I have in the past six months. That's what happens when you have compounding and when you continue to aggressively fund your portfolio. So on this chart that I even keep track of this, you can see my actual monthly income. And like I pointed out before, I'm looking at the growth rate. If I look at November of 2018, I earned $43 in dividends. November of 2019, this year, $168 in dividends. So yeah, the $2,000, it might be somewhat of a low number, but the fact that I've doubled this number from 1,000 to 2,000 in just six months compared to a year and a half, and the fact that I've gone from $42 the previous year to $168 this year, shows me that the growth of this is going up exponentially. Now, the most fun part about this is the activity screen here. If I go and I filter by dividends, I get a look at who's paying me my rent. The whole way that I look at this portfolio, like I pointed out in other videos, it makes me feel like I'm a landlord, like I own a diversified portfolio of rental properties. And all those properties are rented. They're paying me rent. That rent comes in in the form of dividends. And I just see those checks come in. And the great thing is, is as a landlord, I have other people managing my properties. So I don't even have to manage them. I just have to decide whether I hang on to them or whether they're having a tough time staying rented. They can't continue to pay dividends. I'll sell them. So that's the way that I view this. But the fun part is, is you see this income stream come in from all your different properties that you own, continually paying you month over month, quarter over quarter. I look at this in just the month, December. We're halfway through the month. It's December 14th when I'm recording this. December 2nd, I got dividends, like 20 bucks worth of dividends. The 3rd, the 5th, the 6th, the 10th, the 12th, the 13th. Right now it's the 14th. Every couple of days, I'm getting a lot of dividends. And these aren't really small amounts. Some of these, like this is $13, $2, $19, $7, another one $13, $4, $7, $9. Every couple of days, I'm getting this money. It continually gets added to my cash balance and it gets reinvested. So this is the most fun part to me is just seeing these companies pay these dividends. This income comes in continually. And the great thing is, is unlike if you're just invested for capital gains, these dividends, these companies, they don't care what the market is doing. They don't care about the latest tweet on whether there is a, a trade war or not. These companies will continue paying dividends as long as they're profitable. So whether the S&P 500 goes down 10%, down 20%, or up 10%, you're just going to continue to get the same amount of dividends that you always have, and likely it will increase over time. The only thing that would stop these companies from paying their dividends is if they actually become unprofitable. 
is if their actual business is being affected. So it has nothing to do with market fluctuations or, you know, the, the latest political news coming out, that type of stuff. The dividends are actually dependent on whether the company is profitable and can continue to pay that money. Now, you might ask, well, Joseph, you look at this like you're owning a bunch of rentals, right? And let's say that you own 100 rentals all across the US and Europe. What if some of them stop paying rent, right? What if one of these companies stops paying dividends? Okay, I would do the same thing as if I had a rental that I just couldn't keep rented. You know, that maybe the, the area that it's in is a declining population. People are moving away. There's high crime. There might be drugs moving into the area. I would sell it. I would sell the rental, take the loss, put that money into ones where the population is growing, where it's a flourishing economy, and that rental is going to pay me more rent over time. I look at these companies the exact same way. Even if I sold some of my biggest holdings at a loss, let's say Realty Income Corp went down like 50% because they, they become unprofitable, they're not paying their dividend anymore, they're on the brink of going bankrupt, and the value falls 50%. I would just sell it. No holding in my portfolio makes up for over 5% of my portfolio. So even if a company went completely bankrupt and lost all value, returned nothing to me, I wouldn't lose over 5% of my portfolio. So that's the benefit of having a diversified portfolio is that if a couple companies have trouble and you have to sell out of them, let's say that a couple of these stop paying dividends, I'll sell them. I'll probably take a loss on those ones that I've sold that stopped paying their dividend. But that is usually offset. It's usually mitigated by all the companies that aren't having trouble, that are continuing to pay their dividends to gain in value, that type of thing. So that's the same way that an ETF works. If you buy a dividend ETF, you've bought an instrument that compiles together a bunch of companies that all meet a certain criteria. Like they might pay dividends and they might raise their dividends once a year. That's the criteria. If a company no longer meets that criteria, the ETF will sell out of it and buy a new company. That's called turnover. So if you want to look at how much your ETF is selling, look at the turnover rate of your ETF. So I manage this portfolio in similar fashion where I have certain criteria that every single one of these holdings needs to meet. Mostly is that they're paying me a residual stream of income. If they stop paying me that residual stream of income, it's just as if I have a rental apartment that I can't get rented. I'm probably just going to sell it, give the headache to someone else, I'll buy something that I think is a better property in a better area. That's what I plan on doing with my portfolio, how I plan on managing those instances. So overall, I look at this and I ask myself, is this whole thing, is this dividend growth portfolio, You know, this, are these strategies that I'm doing over the past two years, have they met my goals, my expectations? And I would say yes. I think that I am growing a stream of passive income. I'm doing it in a pretty conservative, diversified way. And so far, I've really in enjoyed doing this. I think it's a relatively fun, easy way to invest that gives decent returns that doesn't put your money in as much risk as other ways of investing. So I also think to mention before moving on to the news is that part of my goal in 2020, when I look forward into the future and I see what am I doing? This is meeting my goal so far. I feel comfortable with everything else that we could invest in right now. I feel comfortable investing in this. What are my goals with 2020? What are my goals with the future? I have $70,000 in this portfolio, and that might seem like a lot of money. To me, that seems like a lot of money, but I have to maintain the mentality that I'm looking at the bigger picture. The market might go down 10% or 20% or up 20% or whatever in the upcoming years, but I look at this and I say, I want this to be millions of dollars. I don't want this to be $70,000. I don't want in the past month to have earned $255. I want in the past month to have earned $2,550. I need to make this go up 10 times in value. And the only way to do that 
is to not concern myself with every little nitty gritty thing that happens in the market, like real estate falling 5% over the past month or whatever things people can get strung up on. I'm buying productive assets. I'm funding this as fast as I can, putting as much money as I can while holding a savings. So I, you know, if we had the whole, you know, if I lost a job or something like that, I would have a rainy day fund, but I'm looking at the bigger picture. And that's what I think people should look at. When you're investing, let's say that you invest and you have some ETFs or a dividend portfolio like this or whatever you're investing in, you need to look at this like, I need to get to where I have over a million dollars in this. You want to retire with millions of dollars. To do that, you need to fund this thing frequently, every single week, every single month. You need to be putting money in it. So my goal is to just fund this thing as aggressively as I can and to watch the power of compounding work and to try to protect my investments against whatever type of threats can happen with them, right? So that's my goal. I'm looking at this, the big picture. I want to have millions of dollars. I don't want to have $70,000. I think if you're just starting off and you're looking at a couple thousand dollars here, even if you were the best investor in the world and you doubled your money from $1,000 to $2,000, you still have $2,000. The way that you make progress starting off investing is by funding, funding, funding. You have to budget, put some of your money in investments every single week, every single month, build this up to the point where it gets to six figures, where it's more than your salary that you're making. And then along the way, the dividends will kick in and start helping you out. The market will start helping you out. Investing in these productive companies will start carrying their own weight a little bit more. So I want to get to the point where I'm earning more and more dividends. To do that, I'm going to be funding it aggressively. And like always, I'm going to be showing you the results. So this is a lot of money. There's a lot here at stake, at least to me personally, there's a lot here at stake, but I'm going to be broadcasting week by week what happens with this portfolio. I plan on soon hitting $100,000 with it. So we'll cross the six figures. I'll keep showing you what happens with these different holdings and the amount of income that I'm producing. And I think it'll be an interesting thing to follow along with that journey. Okay, let's get into some news here. The China deal, as you know, was just approved a little while ago. It's a phenomenal deal. That is right. You heard it from President Trump. We made the first, uh, the I guess, the first step to the trade deal, right? Part one of this trade deal. I said that I don't really know what part one even means, but we are seeing some details of it. We don't have all the details. Pretty much right now, what the U.S. agreed with China to do was we're going to at least halt some tariffs, lower some tariffs, while keeping some other ones going. So we have some other tariffs that were previously set that are still going, but we're not stacking on any future tariffs. In fact, we're reducing the amount that we're doing. And China has said, at least the US is reporting this, that they're going to buy more of our goods. So this is pretty big if it actually stays true and this deal comes together. It would be step one in figuring out trade negotiations. Here it says, details emerge Friday from the U.S. first stage trade deal with China, which marked a milestone in President Trump's initiative to rebalance trade with Beijing, but left questions over how far it will go to level the playing field with U.S. businesses. The limited agreement, capping months of sometimes testing negotiation, calls for China to purchase more products from American farmers and other exports, U.S. officials said. So that's pretty much the, the sum of it. This is something where We've actually agreed on something, it seems. The U.S. and China have agreed on something that we're not going to damage China anymore with the trade war. They've agreed that they're going to buy some of our agricultural stuff that they've tried to inflict pain on us as well by saying we're going to buy agricultural goods from other countries. I'm still on the side of investors with this where overall I'm kind of fatigued with the trade war news. It's just been going on for two years. You know, we've heard good news and bad news. Usually it's in the form of just 
tweets or statements from the White House, and usually it doesn't amount to anything, but this actually seems like a real agreement. I think this is actually a substantive step in the right direction. The next bit of news I wanted to mention was Aramco's valuation. This company, Aramco, is a Saudi company. They have a lot of oil. They've used that to extract it and refine it and sell it to Western companies and everywhere across the world. And in the process, they've made a lot of money that has allowed them to invest in other ventures. Now, this company in particular, Aramco, is not traded on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. It's not something I'm going to be buying. Not only do I not have interest in it, but it's not traded on the exchanges I have access to right now. I guess I could open up another brokerage and buy it through other means, but I don't have any uh, thoughts of doing that. There's a couple reasons why. The government there and the surrounding regions and the area, I'm no expert on it, but to me, it just doesn't seem exactly stable, right? When I think of Europe, I think stable. When I think of Canada, I think stable. When I think of the US, I think stable. When I think of Australia, I think stable. There's lots of areas that I can invest in that I think have great investments that I think stable area, stable government. When I think of Saudi Arabia and at least the surrounding areas, especially with a company like this, Aramco, that supplies oil, stability does not exactly come to mind. It's not something, I'm not trying to be insulting. I know we have some viewers that are are from Middle East and, and surrounding regions. So I'm not trying to insult anybody's country here, but when I look at what I want to put money in and invest in, stability is an important factor. So that's going to be something I'm actually going to consider in my investments. That's just the way it is. You have companies like this. This is from the Wall Street Journal that Saudi officials consider delaying the Aramco IPO after tax. And you go in and, and just look at some of the footage and a lot of these facilities were bombed. There's wars going on. There's things happening here that typically don't happen in more developed areas of the world. And this attack shut down 5% of the world's oil, like literally just stopped it until they could get everything back in gear. So that's one consideration I look at that is a negative to me. It's another risk that you take on as an investor. Beyond that, there's other things that I consider with this. The first thing is, I see trends moving towards renewable energies. That's the direction I see most of the world wanting to move. At least most developed nations are wanting to move towards renewable energy. The reason that Aramco wants to sell a portion of their company is so that they can divest 100% from oil. They can invest in renewables and other ventures, other things that will make money and diversify their portfolio. I think that they know that oil is not going to be the thing that drives this world forever that it is a temporary source for an economy. They know that they need to divest from it. They need to invest in other companies. So what they're doing is they're selling a stake in Aramco. They're using that money to invest in other Western businesses. You see that Saudis have large portions of ownership of a lot of American tech companies. So they use the hundreds of billions of dollars that they get from companies like Aramco. They purchase up portions of American and Western tech companies that are completely different And that way they try to diversify their portfolio. So I'm not trying to move more towards oil. That's not my goal. Right now, energy companies make up like 2% of my portfolio, which is a very small percentage, especially considering that I'm a dividend investor. Most companies like this pay pretty big dividends. The answer to that question is no, I'm not going to be buying any shares of Aramco. I think it will most likely be a fine investment for most people to have. They're going to protect this investment because it represents a large portion of their economy. So I think it will be good for most people. It's just not the direction I'm going. Out of all the places I can invest, I think that there's a little bit more stable places to invest than in Saudi Arabia. But other than that, the bigger reason why is I really just don't want to increase my stake in oil. i rather move to something that I think is more future-proof. The direction that the world seems to be moving to is renewable energy. That's the direction I want to be going. So those are the big reasons why. I will say that I think that 
they're doing something smart here. I think by divesting and selling off a little bit of Aramco and using that money to invest in other things, really, they're not just diversifying their portfolio, they're diversifying their economy. Having equity in different Western businesses that are not oil, you know, something other than that, I think will bring a lot more stability and it's like future-proofing their economy a lot more. So I think they're doing a smart thing there. And then the last bit of news is Robinhood has joined the wave of lots of other different trading apps and, and stock investing apps that offer fractional shares. So they announced that they're going to be offering fractional shares. On top of that, they're going to be doing automated investing. You could probably just set up a schedule and say, I want it to go to this holding and that holding. So I see a level of fidelity and similarities as all these different brokers come out with these features. They're becoming more and more alike, right? That the differences between all of them are becoming more alike. And that's similar to how things work. If you look at a cell phone between Android and Apple, as time goes on, they start to look similar to each other. They start to feel similar to each other. The differences become less and less and less. I feel like brokers are going the same direction. Now, there's some people, I always get messages about this. Some people are very excited about it. I think that's a great thing. I will say that I don't share, I think, the same passion for, I don't get too excited for every single feature that every broker comes out with. Uh, a lot of people will like look at what's the latest feature of Schwab and they will switch to it if they have one feature that Robinhood doesn't come out with. And then if Robinhood comes out with a feature, they'll switch back to Robinhood. And they're doing all these account transfers all the time, which I just, uh, you know, I look at M1 Finance. It does everything that I need it to do right now automated investing, handles retirement accounts, does fractional shares, portfolio automation, all that type of stuff. So I'm pretty happy there. I don't see any reason why this makes me want to switch to other brokers. And and I know that M1 works good for what I want it for. So that might be a lazy way of doing it, but I just feel like it would take a lot of energy to continually switch from one broker to another. That's not something that I'm really willing to do unless I see something substantially better about one broker over the one that I'm using. So if I saw something substantially better about another broker than M1 or the one I'm using, then I would seriously consider switching. But Robinhood introducing a feature set that is a move towards what M1 is doing, but M1 is already doing that, I don't see as a reason for me to, to switch over to Robinhood or Schwab or any other one. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. If I was it to make a prediction, I think in a year or two, this stuff won't matter that much because I think a lot of the core features of trading, having fractional shares, automated deposits, those things will be completely standard across the industry. So trying to guess which one is going to get there the week before the other one, it's just a matter of time. I think every single broker will have these features in it and the ones that don't will be complete outliers. So for instance, right now, M1 Finance offers Roth IRA and retirement support. Robinhood does not. But I'm sure I'll get the same questions and stuff when Robinhood eventually offers retirement account support. People will say, what about Robinhood? You know, it came out with this new feature. It's just the same thing that I'm not going to be switching from M1 unless I see something substantially better at another broker. So for me, I can't really give an unbiased look at what broker to use because my experience with different brokers varies a lot. I have extensive experience with M1 Finance. That is the one that I've used and learned and have enjoyed using for the past two years. So that has biased my view towards M1, where it would take a lot for me to move from it because I just know it so well, I've used it, it has all the features that I want, it works the way that I want it to work. I've had good experience with the customer service and you know everything about it, I really haven't had any problems with it. I really haven't had any issues and I like the way the Pi system works. I like the way that it has fractional shares that reinvest automatically into underweight holdings 
They have advanced scheduling system that allows for deposits on every schedule you could dream of, right? Every pay period, every month, every week, all this type of stuff. So it just has most of the features that I want. It offers Roth IRA, retirement account support. So I haven't seen anything, like I said, with other brokers that I've looked at and I've gone, gosh, I really need to move over to that. I'm really missing out. I haven't gotten close to that point with any other brokers. So maybe that day will come if one broker just comes out with amazing functionality that M1 doesn't have or it's not capable of doing that's really good for this type of investing, passive income and dividend investing. So far, I haven't seen that happen. So I'll keep an eye out on all the different brokers. But this news, I think, is exciting for Robinhood users that are already in the app and have the same experience. They want to stay there. But for me, it's just uh, they're introducing some features that I already enjoy right now. Okay, let's get to some questions here. You can email me at josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. That's josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. You can also message me on Instagram or Twitter. I check those as well. The first one is from Oliver. He wrote an email. He says, Dear Joseph, first of all, thank you very much for your podcast. I listened to them on the train, and they are by far one that I find the most enjoyable and approachable for someone that is currently being introduced to finance. As an environmental engineer student, I spend a lot of time studying about climate change and a lot of the impacts. In a climate assembly recently, someone brought up the fact that 100 companies are responsible for 71% of the emissions produced since 1988. I am very interested in finance, obviously, but I'm also interested in the impact companies have or how they try to address it. Because as a student, I'm trying to think long term with my investments, considering the environmental changes of companies becoming a factor in my investment strategy. I saw that you had a position in Chevron and Exxon. I was wondering what your long term view is on these companies and if you're concerned by the fundamental problems their existence cause. Thank you very much for taking the time to read my message. I love to hear back from you. Okay, Oliver. Well, thanks for writing in. I appreciate the question. This question, I think, is interesting. And I want people to listen to it because this type of fact, I think, is a good example of how something that's true, we can take this as truth. 100 companies are responsible for 71% of the emissions produced since 1988. I think that that is probably true. I have no reason whatsoever to disbelieve that fact. But this is a good example of how these quick facts without much context or thought behind them are at best unhelpful and at worst highly misleading. So let's go ahead and look at the list of these 100 companies that are responsible for 71% of the emissions. I look at them and it's pretty much every single energy company, every oil company in the world. The top spot is China Coal. The second spot is Saudi Arabian oil company, Aramco, the one we just talked about. These are the biggest oil companies in the world. And then you have ExxonMobil, number five, and so on and so forth. 100 of the biggest oil companies in the world. So Oliver, the reason that I say that these type of stats about emissions are at least not helpful, and I think that they're kind of misleading, they lead people to false conclusions, is that yes, 71% of the emissions might come from these 100 companies, but why don't you couple that fact with the fact of how much energy they produce? I bet you if I went through and I added up all 100 companies and calculated the percentage of the world that is powered by these 100 companies, it would be above 71%. I bet you it would be more like 80 to 85% of the world's energy that we consume comes from these 100 companies. So why did they give us just the downside of these companies, just the negative effect without giving you the benefit and the upside of what they're providing the world? It's as if I went to any company and just told you, something really negative about it without mentioning at all the product or service, the upside, the good that they're providing. So 
That's the reason I think that these type of statistics are misleading is because they are mentioning one side of the picture. I bet you these 100 companies are producing somewhere between 80 to 85% of the world's energy that we consume. Without that energy, what do we move to? There's not that many renewable companies to, to invest in. I have some of them in my portfolio. I have more money in renewable energy than I do in, in oil, right? I have a, a bigger amount of money in renewable energy than I do in oil. But regardless, 80% of the world is still powered by these companies. So my follow-up question to this that I think just exposes these type of statistics is, okay, what is your solution to that? What are the better investments? What are the better things that we should be doing? I can see that the government's already taking action to try to foster innovation into renewable energies. There's all sorts of rebates and incentives to move to renewable. So I think that they're doing pretty much everything they can. I work in a solar company. They've done a lot to make it so that getting solar in this type of thing is more affordable than how efficient solar is, right? So the government is somewhat manipulating the market a little bit to try to foster more people to go to renewable energy, even when it's not quite as economically viable right now. There's a lot of projections that it will keep getting more and more efficient. And as time goes on, we will move more and more to renewable energy. But in the meantime, what are we supposed to do about the 80% of the world that is left relying on these 100 companies? So a lot of people say, well, don't invest in them. I feel it's silly to say, I'm going to take a stance and not invest in this company because I don't like this company. It's doing a bad for the world. But then you consume all of their products. That's just as if I really hated Coca-Cola because their sodas cause all these health problems and I, I just hate the company, but I still drink Coca-Cola, right? It just, that's the way it feels to me. So I still use oil. I think that we're moving towards renewable energy, but I still consume and use oil as a, a person living on this planet. And so I think it's fine having a small stake in oil companies until I'm able to say, hey, there's a lot of other viable solutions to invest in. That's where some money's going to be. But if you have other ideas, if I'm missing something here, if there are much better stable investments that are future proof and you know they don't run higher risks than oil companies right now, I would love to hear them. I'm seriously open to suggestions. That's something that I'd be interested in to hear. The next question is from Cooper. He says, hello, I started watching your videos recently and I'm confused about one thing. How does this pay off? If you were to buy a stock for $100 and then the yield was 2%, you would need 50 dividends in order to make your stock even. I'm looking at this wrong or is there something I'm missing? I understand that you meant to wait on it, but it seems like a long time period. Thank you for your time and your advice. Love your videos and your podcast. Okay, Cooper. Well, this one, I can tell it's in, you're new to dividend investing because what you're thinking in your head is that you buy this for $100 and all you're getting back is the 2% dividend yield, which would be $2 per year paid to you. So there's a couple of things you're forgetting. I'll go through the, the list real quick. One of them is you still own the share that's presumably worth the $100, right? You still own that. So it's not like you just get the 2%. You get the 2% on top of still owning the underlying asset, the share that you bought, that's paying that 2%. Your ownership of that share worth $100, it's what that's what's paying you the 2%. That's what makes you entitled to it as a shareholder. So it's not like you're, you're paying that $100 and then it's just gone. And then all you get is 2% per year. You still own that $100. Uh, that's one thing. You still own it. The next thing is that that $100, that share should go up in value as well. So you're not only earning money by the 2% dividend yield, but you're earning money by the underlying asset increasing in value. So that's the second thing you're forgetting. The third thing is, is that 2%, which is $2 per year, 
if it was $100 a share, it would be $2 per year that you'd be getting paid. Companies that pay dividends, they typically raise the amount that they pay year over year. So now there's a third way that you're increasing value, and that is that the next year the company might pay you $2.20 per share, but you still only paid 100 bucks for it. So now the yield is 2.2% for your purchase price. That's called yield on cost. You can look that up, yield on cost. So that is, what is that, the fourth way? And then there's a fifth way that you're making money that you're forgetting about here. And that is that the money that you earn that's paid out every quarter of this 2% per $100, right? $2 a year per share. That money gets paid out quarterly. That money doesn't just sit there. It gets reinvested back in your portfolio. So now you're earning money on the money you've already been paid. That new money that you've been paid is reinvested and you're earning money on that. That's called compounding. So you're forgetting about compounding when you say it take 50 years to get your money back. So uh, just to go through those, you still own the underlying asset, the $100 that you spent. That $100 that you spend, if you buy a good company that's growing, it should go up in value. The 2% that you're getting paid, the $2 per share, should also increase over time. So that's another way that it increases. You also have reinvestment, which makes it so that you're compounding. So all those factors add together, make this a lot more appetizing of a deal. This is something like how you just kind of outlined this, where you transact $100 to get back $2 a year. If that was just the deal, I would never do that. So that's not a deal I would do. But... If you look at all the other factors involved with dividend investing, it makes it a lot more uh, appealing of a deal. Okay, well, I'm going to save the other questions for the next video I have lined up. I should have one out in a couple days, so it should be interesting. If you want to see that one, hit the subscribe button. If you want to join and support the channel directly, you can join the Discord. There's a Patreon link in the description. Otherwise, I'll talk to you guys next time.